I'm Kate. I'm Ingrid. I'm Kieran. And I'm Yasmeen. Welcome to another episode of True Lime, a podcast truly focused on true crime. And we also dabble in literature, hence the L. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Pygmalion by Bernard Shaw. So Kate, do you want to take it away? Pygmalion is a play, not really a novel, and it's about a girl primarily and her name is Eliza. Um, she is a Cockney girl, which means she's lower class and she has a very strong Cockney accent that I can't do. And she sells flowers as a living to rich people so she can get by and support herself. Right, and so that's how the play starts out. And um, I guess basically a summary of the play is uh, she is found by like two linguists who strike up a bet to teach her uh, how to speak proper English. And one of those uh, gentlemen or those linguists is Henry Higgins, um, and he is the one who is in charge of teaching Eliza, and then the other is Pickering, who is the one who struck the bet, and he agrees to finance all of um, the lessons if Eliza wins the bet, and basically the bet is if she can be passed off as a duchess, I believe, mm-hmm. um, uh, in about six months. Yeah, and so basically along the course of this bet in which they're trying to pass off Eliza as a duchess, they're kind of faced with the question like, okay, well, what's going to happen to her when the bet's over? And she's faced without herself at the end, and it's this whole big thing because she's completely changed herself and then she doesn't know what to do about it. Right, and so that sort of realization of like what to do next uh, is most profound in Chapter 4, which is what we're going to be focusing on in this episode. Uh, and basically why it's so important is because uh, that's sort of where the turning point is and that's where all that drama uh, sort of like um, comes out, I guess, uh, in chapter four. Before we get into chapter four, let me do a 30 second recap about the chapter. And it'll start now. Higgins and Pickering and Eliza come back from the party. Pickering and Higgins, they are almost trash talking her talking about how boring and like exhausting the experiment was and then eliza hears them and her feelings get hurt and then out of nowhere she throws a slipper at higgins and then they start fighting about what eliza should do with her life and then she runs away and she goes and makes out with freddie So we decided to choose this like big dramatic act four because we feel like it was the real boiling boiling point of the play that kind of gets into all of the issues that the play illustrates. And so whenever Higgins and Eliza have this argument about Higgins and Pickering talking about her and about her future and Higgins and Pickering were talking about her like she wasn't even there, like she was an object and they took all the credit for her basically learning how to act like a duchess and her English got so much better and they kind of took all that credit for it. So this chapter essentially is, I mean, the chapters before this or the scenes before this uh, are essentially a really subtle build up to this turning point, I guess. Um, And also you see like, um, I feel like we should mention you see like that struggle with identity and like power and that's what something we're gonna really focus on is like identity. and especially when she runs off with Freddy, uh, which is something like you weren't really expecting. Um, you kind of see like she's trying to find her identity with Freddy uh, as someone who is like more dominant or like powerful. Um, and so that's something you're going to see that relates to 
identity. <laughs> okay, so going off of our thematic topic of identity, I had a personal anecdote and connection that I could use that talks about my identity. So um, my dad is from Punjab, his family. He was born and raised in Georgia though. And my mom is from Southern India, whereas my dad's family was from Northern India. They had different religions and very starkly different cultures. This meant that growing up, it was very hard to understand what I was religiously and culturally because they were so different in their sides. They were basically contrasting each other. They were foils, essentially. And this led to pressure from both sides, both sets of grandparents to be as close to their side as possible. So every time I would see them, it was like, um, an Indian boot camp where they trained me to be the best version of their Indian grandchild that I could be, which meant it was constant like memorization of religious hymns and alphabet and language, and it didn't stick because I felt so estranged from that culture, and eventually it just became like this monotonous thing that I would do with them, and I just felt more isolated. And I kind of related to Eliza did in this book where it became something that originally she wanted to better herself like I did. I wanted to become closer to those parts of my family, but in the end, you just she just ended up feeling isolated and alone, which was the way that I felt. I lost my own identity like Eliza did, trying to be someone who I wasn't. Yeah, I've also felt like Eliza too. I had a situation with my parents where they already had my whole life planned out. Coming from a father who has a business already, he wants me to join this business, even though that's not what I'm really passionate about, you know? And just not having that freedom or that liberty to choose what I want to be in life or what I want to study, um, since I'm more passionate about um, the medical field and not about business stuff, because that's boring. <laughs> To get us started on our main discussion, we're going to start with characterization and start with our main character, Eliza Doolittle. It's pretty hard to narrow down Eliza's character because of like all the changes she goes through. And so her character is constantly evolving and something that we know about her is that she's defined by her speech. So whenever she speaks with that Cockney accent, it's like her identity and that's her identity as being a Cockney girl who sells flowers. But then as her speech changes, whenever Higgins teaches her to speak properly, then there's the whole question of like, okay, well, who is she now? Like, what are her values and morals? And like, who is she? And so I think something really defining that we see about her in act four is that she like really stands up to Higgins after the night of the party. Why is that like particular instance? Why is that so um, significant to Eliza's character? I think that it like really shows that Eliza is strong and fierce and even like feminist like even for her time because <clears throat> she does value hard work and she wants to be independent and support herself and like own her own flower shop and so I feel like that's really progressive for the time period of this book which is like 20th century England and so I think that she wants to have a purpose and so that's why whenever Higgins is like what do you mean like just get married that she fights that so hard. And with Higgins, he is a linguist. He is someone who lacks empathy and fails to consider other people's feelings. So basically he's heartless. And as 
I feel like it's really ironic that they're having like Higgins, this like kind of like disgusting male character who treats everyone like awfully and he acts like a pig all the time, mm-hmm. is teaching Eliza how to be a duchess. Yeah. Like, like I right. so ironic. I mean, you really see is. in chapter three of the garden party, like there are some consequences to his mannerisms when she starts cursing and that's like they're on the brink of failure with her because of Higgins' bad example. Also, like, um, Essentially, like, with Eliza and Higgins, you see this power struggle in the fourth act. Because, honestly, in the previous acts, uh, in two and three, she's not really that, um, she's, especially in three, she, I feel like she's more of a background, whereas Mm -hmm. Higgins is more of the dominant character. She's very And in this one, she finally stands up and decides that she doesn't want to, uh, she doesn't want to be dependent on Higgins, uh, to be, like, the dominant male character. Uh, and <coughs> essentially she doesn't want to uh, she wants to sort of rise in power almost mm-hmm. this like scene is almost or like this fight is almost like a power play especially how she like taunts Higgins oh, with yeah. like uh, like she what's that one thing she said she's like um, <coughs> you know what I'm saying like she's like uh, is this minor pickerings like, oh yeah she's yeah. referring to her clothing and her jewelry yeah. and she's talking about how really none of the things that she's wearing, none of her clothes are actually her own. They've all been bought and given to her by the two linguists. In fact, the only thing that was truly her own possession was burned when she was first um, brought into Higgins' laboratory, where she was then, like, forcefully bathed and, like, transformed into this new girl, the beginning of the transition. It goes into, like, her, like, identity being so changed that, like, none of her clothes are the same. She doesn't own anything from mm-hmm. her past life, but what she does have now, it isn't even hers. No. It was, like, stuff that Pickering bought for her. It's not her identity. It's someone else that they've created and forced her to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Almost like a costume. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like she's putting on a costume, but once she takes it off, there's nothing there. Like, she doesn't know who she is anymore. So that's like, that's the realization you get in Act Mm Four. Sorry, you can say something. No, it's okay. And then Higgins. Okay, Higgins. I feel he's always saying in the play how he treats everyone the same, right? But that's so not true. Mm -hmm. Because you see how he treats his servant. And his mother and Eliza and Pickering. Yeah, yeah. he treats Pickering the most differently. He like yeah. worships Pickering. Yeah. He has respect for him. Is it because he's a man? Yeah, I, I mean it's that's also a... like the linguist part of it, where it's like you know you you work in the same uh, profession that I do, so I'm gonna respect you because mm-hmm. you've published a book, you know. But like people in the same social class, he also <laughs> like in that chapter there is like a line in there where both him and Pickering talk about, like, how people are fools in the class and, like, they shouldn't even be in this high social class. And, like, they're talking about, like, how great Eliza is and it's, like, everybody cannot compare to Eliza mm-hmm. with her manners and her great, like, stuff. Um, so, like, he's just got this habit of looking down on people. I think what you were saying about them having the same career just kind of plays into how arrogant he truly is because he doesn't really recognize and show the same amount of respect that he expects from others except to this one person who actually does the same thing that he does. Mm -hmm. And in the first scene, it's when they're talking about how they had originally been separately planning to travel across the world to meet each other. That just kind of establishes how highly they view each other. And that puts into contrast how lowly Higgins, or how poorly Higgins treats all the other characters. So what does this, like, go to show about Higgins' identity? I know we didn't discuss this previously, but... um, 
I'm sure there's something to be said about his identity as well in this act. I know Higgins in particular is really childish. He finds lots of conflict where there is none. He puts himself, like, he laughs at other people's expense. That's one of his favorite things to do. And, like, even the scenes where he's interacting with his mother, when she, when he acts out, she quickly corrects him, and then he just, like, huffs huffs off and acts in, I don't know, a very immature way. Mm -hmm. It's, like, almost like you're looking at a three-year-old in the middle of a tantrum. He acts like this posh, sophisticated man. He makes it his life work to help other people, like Eliza, get to that position, but at heart, he really is this just impolite, child kid selfish yeah. he's selfish he's like arrogant selfish. Mm-hmm. do you think he uh, he has any regard for other people's identities hence like what we see in eliza is the lack of identity um he definitely doesn't care i feel like he doesn't really care about her unless it benefits him yeah like, and especially he doesn't care that like what she's going through internally with this like struggle about her identity he just really doesn't care about it he's like why are you angry with me look at all this stuff that i've given you he's just really kind of ignorant in his eyes eliza really is a project she's there to improve him and his reputation he's something that she can brag about like look what i did i took this thing and made her into this beautiful creature that people would literally get up on their chairs to watch as she walked by and they would she she fooled like this I don't know, expert at dialects into thinking that she was this foreign princess and he's boasting about this and he's going to use her and her, like, I don't know, identity crisis and everything to better himself in his career. So I see, like, in Act 4, he's surprised when Eliza throws a tantrum because, like, you're right, he really just views her as a project. Like, he has disregard for feeling... um, and so, yeah, you, that's why you see that reaction at Higgins. Like, he's so angry about it. Because, like, he's like, you could just get married, but that's not, like, that's not identity. That's just, like, that, that's not what she wants. Do you think that's his sexism playing into it? That a woman should be at a particular point, and once she gets there, then all that's left for her to do is to get married? Like, that's the woman's sole purpose. Um, he strives for, like, professional achievement, but... And Eliza, in terms of Eliza, he sees her next step as possibly getting married, not pretty much anything else. Do you think that's him being sexist, or do you think that's just him not knowing what else she could do? I honestly just think that's him, like, almost, like, discarding Eliza. I don't really think it actually has to do anything with... I mean, it might have to do with sexism, because, like, she is a woman, and I'm trying to imagine if Eliza was a male instead. I don't even know if this entire situation would even play out. Probably not. Yeah. So that's hard to say, honestly. I think it's really important that he had no regard for her future or what would it be in store for her after this because all she wanted to do and the only reason she did this in the first place was that she wanted to own her own flower shop. Like, it's really simple. She just wanted to speak better so that she could have more opportunities Mm -hmm. in the working class world. I don't think she knew really what she was getting into. Yeah, I think it's important to go off of that of... Eliza came into this thinking that she could better her her identity, which would in fact change her life in a way that she would never have gotten to before. Like, all of these opportunities that she was expecting, she really has none of them, and in fact she got rid of the only identity she had, and she didn't even realize how much of it she ended up having in the first place. I think it's, like, the most interesting, though, like, as far as, like, Freddy as a character, to introduce him, Mm -hmm. that... 
he does notice her. Like, he, like, watches her from the balcony as they leave Mrs. Higgins' house, even though she just, like, kind of did that whole thing and started cussing, and they were like, oh, my gosh. But he did notice her then. But then that they really, like, get together after her transformation, mm -hmm. I feel like that's just an interesting part of the story. Okay, and so for context, Freddie appears in the play three times. The first is in the first scene where he's hailing a taxi in the middle of the pouring rain for his wealthy mother and sister. Um, in this scene, he bumps into Eliza, and that is the first introduction and kind of sparks when she um, starts her interaction and relationship with Higgins and Pickering. The next time we see him is what Kate was talking about in Act 3, when he is there with Higgins' mother and Eliza's being pre presented as a lady for the first time. And then the last act, um, or last appearance was in Act 4, which is our act, and that's after she, Eliza, argues with Higgins and runs away, she runs into Freddie, who is really creepily staring up at her window, and then he admits <laughs> that every night he comes to the street and just watches her turn off her lights and imagines her Disgusting. going to sleep, and he's just like, okay, my love. Um, I personally think Freddy is kind of a neglected character. He's there to be made fun of. He really is only there to emphasize other characters' traits. He's talked down by pretty much everyone, including Higgins especially. Um, but he still does have an importance and a relevance. He highlights a lot of the gap between the upper and lower class in the first scene by acting as the cause of interaction between Eliza and the mother and sister. I think that's a really important part to talk about because all of this happened because Freddy bumped into Eliza, and then she happened to randomly pick a name that was his, which sparked his mother paying Eliza, and then all of them kind of got into this giant conversation, which oh, led to really Eliza's start. Mm -hmm. oh and then God. in the end of this act, she's running away from Eliza. Yeah. So, I mean, running away with Freddie. Freddie got her into this, metaphorically, but now he's kind of her Getting escape. Her out of it. Right? Mm -hmm. That's, I, I've <laughs> never, I would have never um, made that connection. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and then he spends the next part of his, I guess, act three when he's in the meeting with Higgins' mom, just, like, in love with Eliza. And he even, like Kate said, follows her out into the balcony to watch her walk away. Um, and I think this, like, highlights Eliza, the fact that Eliza escaped with him in the fourth scene is just he gives her that affection and appreciation that she longs for, that she doesn't get from anybody else. And I think that's one of the reasons why she was so willing to just run away with this man and say yeah I'll marry you with only having met him like two other times maybe it's just like the time period that it was set in but I thought that was kind of weird I think that she's one he's one of the only people that she feels comfortable with mm -hmm. and that might be because they're kind of similar as in Freddie is always like neglected and cut off by people and he's kind of like the punching bag a little yeah. bit but that's how she feels I actually think that Freddie gives Eliza a false sense of identity I think that um I think Freddie, she uses Freddie as sort of like this, like, uh, she uses Freddie in the way, same way Higgins uses, used her, almost. Because uh, you see that, of course, that, like, the um, the power dynamic between Eliza and Freddie is that, like, she's more of the in-charge one, she's the dominant one. He's just there because he's madly in love, I guess. Uh, or kind of creepily in love. But, um, yeah, I think... She kind of feels, like, in charge, and, like, that's essentially what Eliza has been looking for this entire time, is, like, power and security, mm -hmm. and Freddie gives her a false sense of that. But Freddie doesn't actually solve any of her problems unless, like, she, I guess she could choose to get married to Freddie, but, like... Which isn't what she wanted. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. she doesn't want marriage, so she wants independence. I think the fact that she said, I'll marry Freddie, is just her rebelling in the only way that she knows how. That's the only sort of freedom or independence that she can, you know, that's the only choice she can make. And mm -hmm. running away and saying, yeah, I'm going to marry Freddie, she knows that Higgins and Pickering are going to disprove of that. So that's exactly why she said it. Um, but what, what role do you think Pickering has in this whole character evolution? Okay, so Pickering, he's not... Uh, like a pivotal part of the argument in Act Four, but he does appear in Act Four, and he sort of uh, he sort of helps like make Eliza angry almost because like um, he's still talking about like oh the party was such a bore blah blah blah, and then Higgins like I'm glad it's over, and so that conversation is what makes Eliza especially mad because she that makes her start to wonder like like was I just like an experiment to them to both of them. But one thing about Pickering is that he is a lot nicer and he's a lot more like, um, I guess you could say thoughtful in what he says to Eliza. And um, even like throughout the play, he doesn't like objectify Eliza or like turn into an object, turn her into an object. He actually treats her like a person. He calls uh, her like Miss Doolittle and like is just overall nicer and tries to give her more of like a, a choice rather than like Higgins being like, you will be my experiment, take this chocolate. Uh, but in this, in, this, uh, in this act, you see that he treats Eliza as an object as well by not directly addressing her, but just being like, did you see Eliza at the party? Um, but yeah. Uh, but I do think overall, Pickering is a catalyst to uh, Eliza's sort of standing up to herself because because Pickering is a lot nicer to her, she feels like she deserves that respect more from Higgins. Like, mm -hmm. Pickering is sort of like the good example that she thinks Higgins should follow now. Um, so I think he does play a, a part in, like, her standing up to herself. So, yeah. I think there is a little bit of manipulation in Pickering's part, though, because in, and this is going off to a different scene, but in one of the, the very first, or is it the second? Yeah, the second act, when Eliza shows up at Higgins' laboratory, um, she's ready to leave because of Higgins making all these demands and just outrageous things that she's not okay with. Right before she's about to walk out the door, Pickering grabs her and shoves a piece of chocolate in her mouth. And he's like, and she's like blown away because it's the most amazing thing she's ever tasted. Because Are you sure that's Pickering? Yeah, yeah. it was Pickering. Um, she, he's like, isn't that good? And she's just like, dumbfounded she's like oh my god she's never had something like this because she's so poor um and he's kind of like well if you stay you'll get all of this you'll get more chocolates i'll buy you more clothes and he kind of coerces her into doing things that he knows will benefit him later on i do think that yes he is a lot nicer to her but i do think it's a lot in his best interest i don't think it's all you know just him being a nice guy if oh, that yeah, makes sense for sure no i completely agree with that um like, I don't know, just like the way he then like casually refers to Eliza as like, did you see Eliza? Like she was so much better when she's in the room. Like they don't even say like, good job Eliza, we're so proud of you. Mm -hmm. No, it's more like about the bet uh, in that scene. So it's kind of like true colors coming out. Yeah. So we're now going to talk about some elements of the story that we think were the most significant and really highlighting the themes of the story. And so those would be setting, narration, and symbolism. And so setting, first of all, 
It was set in 20th century England at the end of the Victorian era. And so that really highlights the prejudice and injustice of a really classist society. Because at that time, it was super lower class, upper class, poor, rich. And it just, I feel like if the story was set in any time frame or place that wasn't as classist, then the story wouldn't have been as impactful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it definitely played a big role in just how the characters saw each other and interacted. Like in the very beginning of the book, Higgins um, especially would just make these insults directed at Eliza because of her, you know, actions and mannerisms that she developed because of the area that she lived in. There's a very distinct, like, way that lower class citizens act in comparison to the higher class citizen, and that made this huge, like, divide in this society. I think the setting also contributed to the, like, sexism part of the story mm -hmm. as far as, like, Eliza's opportunities were so, like, muted compared to what men could do at the time. And I feel like that really highlighted, like, her drive and her passion and how she wanted to work hard mm -hmm. and how, like, she was kind of incapable of doing that because of the setting that she was living in. Also, she's, like, very conscious about, like, um, defending, like, her... I guess you could say like her innocence or her body because she repeatedly says that like I'm a good girl and stuff like that mm -hmm. um, because like for her being in the poor class and being a woman there's not a lot of options for her to be independent and to make money so I thought that was pretty interesting. Other than setting I think that the narration was really important because the story was written as a play and so plays are very visual and it's up to the actors to portray how the characters are feeling. But because we're reading it instead of seeing it, then the stage directions really give a sense of like what the characters are feeling so that you can have that understanding of the characters even though you're not actually watching a play with actors and stuff like that. To the same effect though, there also isn't that like internal dialogue that you a lot of times see in novels you don't really get to go inside the character's mind but you do get like a clear visualization of what happens where and then the dialogue helps you understand why mm -hmm. and then the symbolism one of the most important ones that i felt were present were the slippers um in scene four eliza during her argument with higgins when he comes back down uh, when before he goes to bed he's like where are my slippers um, the, um, yeah, the line in question that we're talking about says, you don't know, I know you don't care, or you don't care, I know you don't care. You wouldn't care if I was dead. I'm nothing to you, not so much as them slippers. Um, I think this is kind of significant because Eliza, as she's throwing them at Higgins' head, she's talking about how she feels as if Higgins sees her as less than a pair of slippers, which in a lot of cultures, shoes represent filth, and it's common to leave your shoes outside the door or in the entrance of the house because it's believed that you bring in negative energies and filth with you as you walk in. And so I think that it was really significant to see just how poorly she feels Higgins views her because something so low, something that touches the ground and all the filth that's on the ground, she thinks he sees her as less than that. Also, I think the slippers represent like a different part of the play, I think it does, as well as like representing Higgins' view of Eliza, I think it also uh, represents sort of like that servant-master dynamic, um, because like fetching, a, fetching your slippers is something 
that a serpent would do. And, like, uh, Eliza doesn't want to be stuck in that whole, like, submissive, like, dominant relationship with Higgins. Um, and so, like, that's where you kind of see that power struggle, and she's kind of, like, rejecting um, that uh, dynamic by throwing the slivers at him. Like, here, you keep your own, um, like, thoughts and beliefs on how I should act. I'm going to act how I want to act. Yeah. Like, this is happening during, like, the argument that they're having because Eliza doesn't know what she's going to do after the experiment is over. And so she doesn't want to be stuck, like, being Higgins, like, living secretary because he always talks about, like, oh, you always know where my things are. You, like, know what my schedule is and all that stuff. And it's just, like... Like, you can tell that she doesn't want that. And so it's honestly really sad that she's so fed up with it that Mm -hmm. she throws slippers at her, like, employer who might be her only chance of having, like, a safe, protected future. And then she just, like, throws it at him because she doesn't want it. Yeah, it's like her breaking point in that scene. She's, like, quiet and calm and just sitting there not doing anything while they're talking about her. And then when he finally does address her, he's like, where are my slippers? That's the only thing he says to her, despite all of the stuff that she's done for him this entire time. And he's like, where are my slippers? And she's like, that's what you're going to say to me. Yeah. So she's like, kind of loses it. It's like an act of rebellion. Yeah. Like she's standing up to him like, like I'm going to take charge now of my independence. Because mm-hmm. she's like, because she's like so willing to like do whatever he wants. Like he's like, oh, fetch that. And she fetches it. But then when she throws it at him, it's like, I'm gaining my independence back. Mm-hmm. The yeah. scene is definitely where she, like, actually projects her voice for, like, the first time, like, whenever she feels like she needs to, because most of the plays she's just kind of, like, submissive. And then, like, this scene is where you see her taking a stand and voicing, like, what she's angry about, which she has a lot to be angry about. And I think she voices her, like, her beliefs and her opinion in as a new woman, because, mm-hmm. like, she was, of course, like, pretty sassy and stuff, like, at the beginning when she was, like, the poor coughing girl but now she's a completely new person and I think she I mean she's you've seen that consistency in her words like that's still part of her identity is that whole like rebellion and independence and stuff and that's one thing that has stayed consistent even though she is pretty much like a completely different person now mm-hmm. definitely um, sure I think another important symbol would be rain just because of I guess the timing that it occurs in the play the first time that we see it is in the very first scene when it's like just pouring rain and we see it again when everyone has returned home it's pouring outside and I think it kind of represents how Eliza changes in the moment that uh, the rain is present in the beginning she has this big change where she goes from this flower girl living on the streets to gaining this new opportunity and going to this new place and basically reinventing herself but now she's like changing in the fact that she's breaking out of those like constraints that Higgins has put her in and is regaining some of that power back. I feel like rain is also important because it was kind of the catalyst for the whole story because without the rain and the need to find shelter for all those people that were just on the street Mm -hmm. without any regard to how much money they had or what class they were in that kind of like gave the opportunity for all of these characters to meet between like the mother and the daughter that are somewhat important in the play into Higgins and Eliza and Pickering and that whole like scenario it really only happened because it was raining exactly I think the taxi is also important um, because it's similarly in the same context as the rain Um, it was at the beginning it was like a big deal for her to take a taxi but now it's like her escape that's what she takes with Freddie 
I also think it's kind of ironic because it does act as her escape, but the money that she's using to get away from that taxi actually is owned by the people she's trying to get away from. So while she is making an independent choice, it's not free of Higgins and Pickering's hold on her. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was interesting. The taxi is kind of like a symbol of like wealth in the story really because like in the beginning she's so excited about being able to take the taxi mm -hmm. and like having the opportunity for once and then by the end she almost takes it for granted yeah. that she can just like hop in a taxi with Freddie and like go make out but like <laughs> I feel like it's kind of interesting to see the way she treats the taxi at first being like so excited about it and then she doesn't even think twice I think yeah. that goes to play like with how much she's uh, changed and like the new woman she's become mm -hmm. is like it, it goes to show that, like, even though you have the um, agency and the ability to, you know, be rich and afford wealthy things, I mean, she's still not happy at the end. So, I mean, I think that's, there's, like, some sort of, like, deeper meaning there mm -hmm, about wealth sure. and, like, what your identity is. I mean, I think it go definitely goes deeper than class. Um, and I think, like, the author is trying to, like, <laughs> Sorry, the author is definitely trying to show that with that with this scene of her being like not content with her um, standing, I guess. Yeah, I think the author is really trying to point out the fact that a lot of people believe that um, identity is created through wealth and through power, and he showed that by Eliza. You know, she wanted to move up in the social class because she thought if I do this, then I will have everything I need to start my flower shop. I'll be able to be successful and have my own life. But I think he was kind of showing how. It's actually the opposite. Like, they always say more money, more problems, but um, you actually lose your identity when that's the only thing that you're striving for. Now a word from our sponsors. Do you ever feel lost? Do you have no idea what to do next in your life? Do you ever feel stuck in your dead-end job selling flowers on the street and being accused of being a prostitute? Call Pickens and Hickering. Definitely not the same characters from Pygmalion. They'll change everything about you, including the way you speak, your personality, and everything else. The Identity Crisis Package is currently on sale for only $19.99. Call today! Okay, so now for the sacred reading. I think we should do, or we're doing the Lectio Divina. Okay, let's see what I flip to. Okay, so page, ooh, 99, and it's actually a stage direction. It says, Eliza's beauty becomes murderous. Um, okay, I think that's a pretty cool line to stop on. It's around the time where Higgins and Pickering are talking to her as if, she, talking about her as if she's an object, she is sitting there and they're kind of talking about how tired they are and how this whole experience has been exhausting and she is being referred to as silly business which is obviously offensive, offensive yeah <laughs> um i think it's kind of cool because she's being trained to be this beautiful and posh woman and all of a sudden it's just kind of like okay i'm not just going to be sitting here, you're pretty object anymore, your project. She's like, I'm done with this. It's really powerful. I just think it's funny because it becomes <laughs> murderous. Like, she will literally, like, kill them for saying these things about her, and she's yeah. literally pissed. <laughs> like, it shows that, like, there's some, like, the, 
I have something to say about beauty where it's like, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. Just because sure. she looks pretty and nice doesn't mean that's how she feels or like that's how she's going to be, mm-hmm. you know? It's cool, too, because, like, it doesn't say that her beauty leaves when yeah. she starts becoming murderous. It's like her beauty, like, looks murderous. I don't know. Like, she's still beautiful, but, like, it, scary. even though, in like, scarily way, yeah. beautiful, yeah. And actually, in this, I went ahead and flipped to the next page. This is around, she still hasn't confronted Higgins. She's still sitting there being talked about. And right after her beauty becomes murderous, Higgins and Pickering leave the room to go to bed, and then it says Eliza tries to control herself and feel indifferent as she rises and walks across to the hearth to turn off the lights, but by the time she gets there, she's just so upset she collapses to the ground because she's has all of these emotions like kind of churning within her, but she has no way of expressing them, and that's when Higgins walks back and he's like, have you seen my slippers? And then... (laughs) Bad timing. (laughs) Boom, boom. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting that she was like trying to like fake it and compose herself mm-hmm. and like still look beautiful and just be murderous you know on the inside yeah um whenever they're still in there because she doesn't want to break down in front of them like mm-hmm. she doesn't want them to see that side of her I guess and then it just like happens because Higgins comes back into the room and that's when the whole thing like blows up I think it's really interesting too because in the very beginning of the play like you see her and the thing that's really like starkly different about her than the rest of the characters is that she's very expressive with her mm-hmm. emotions like she's no very no filter she's very clear she doesn't hold anything back like that whole ow scream that she does mm-hmm. she she's very present with her emotions but here she's holding it back so much i almost think that she was trained like conceal don't feel mm-hmm. not <laughs> sorry but it's really different and really interesting to see this change in a person how significant it was I feel like her beauty is also, like, an advantage to her. Because, you know, in the party, like, nobody even thought that she was, like, a poor girl. Mm -hmm. Just because she was beautiful on the outside. But I feel like she thinks that it's kind of, like, a burden. Because they're only, like, in the party, they only talked about, like, oh, have you seen her? She's so pretty. Like, everybody just looked at her. But I feel like she wants to be more than that. Yeah, like, no one wanted to talk to her. No one wanted to get to know her. She was just so pretty. Like, an object. And it also connects back to, like, the feminism thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about, like, she's such an object that people won't even go up to her and initiate conversation, except they'd rather just stand on the sides of the room, like, even standing on their chair and just stare at her. Like, that's got to be so unnerving and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. That's creepy. It's so creepy. It's like Freddy, but... (laughs) <laughs> not that's what like probably like a lot that's like kind of what like happened though in the time like yeah it's women so, were just seen to be beautiful it's and so problematic though yeah. yeah they were there to be pretty to be, to be wives and to have babies mm-hmm. i don't even think and no. to fetch their man's slippers <laughs> yeah i think it's kind of cool i think it's really cool that she was doing all this because she's like i want to pursue a career and do mm-hmm. all of this stuff go eliza so now we're going to go into our recognitions. I would like to recognize Freddie because I feel like, again, he's an overshadowed character. He has a really big role in this, and he brings out a lot in Eliza and really highlights her strengths. Cool. I would like to recognize Miss Pierce um, because she sort of exemplifies the social structure uh, regarding class in Britain during the time, and then also showcasing how 
Higgins traits like women or just people in general sort of like as like lower beings and also I think uh, Miss Pierce kind of represents uh, sort of like what Eliza would have been if she decided to like conform to Higgins almost maybe I feel like that's like like that was maybe like a possible future for her okay anyway I'm done (laughs) (laughs) I would like to recognize Clara in Sport Hill for being the textbook example of a spoiled brat which highlights a lot of like really awful things about the upper class so it goes more into her as a character kind of like goes more into like trashing the upper class a little bit (laughs) and lastly i would like to recognize alfred doolittle for being a deadbeat dad (laughs) and for selling his daughter for just five pounds because this story would have been nothing without him This has been True Lime, a true crime podcast with a twist of literature. Tune in next time when we dive into the case of Carl Tanzler and his corpse bride. Thank you.